You know, countless songs and movies and poems exist that exalt love's virtue. Here are just a few songs that have love in the title or in some of the lines. Love will keep us together. Love is a many-splendored thing. I will always love you. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. All you need is love. And then for those of us who are a bit delusioned by love, or you may have been battered, love is a battlefield. What's love got to do with it? And love stinks. <laughs> now, I told my mom that all we were going to do this morning is sit and sing a few bars of these songs, and she thought that was pretty funny. She laughed, and but I thought it might be a sure way to uh, not be too popular and not be asked to come back again. So I thought I'd better not do that. I just thought I'd mention them this morning. The love in these songs has little to do with the love that Paul wanted the Corinthians to practice. The Corinthians were a hot mess. I love saying that. As I was researching, other pastors are using the words hot mess. We use it at work all the time. The congregation was full of all kinds of drama and sinful behavior that threatened to ruin the witness of the church to Jesus Christ. This is the context we must think of the love passage. It is meant to be a clever correction to the Corinthian church to stop them from misbehaving. But we wouldn't say that the church today is filled with drama, would we? And that it threatens our witness to Jesus Christ? Would we say that at all today? We would. We too need to know what love truly is and what it means to live in this love. Nowadays, we use love mainly to describe an emotion. Paul was writing in Greek, which has a richer meaning for love. So there are three types. There's eros, which refers to what today we would call romantic or sexual love, love that is a response to beauty or goodness in the beloved. There's philio, from which we get our word philanthropy, in Greek, its meaning is close to what we would call friendship. And there's storage, which carries the sense of love of the familiar, the love we have for family members or people we've known all our lives. And you know, I just the other night, Chris and I were watching television, and there was a commercial on for, is it a mutual, is it a funds thing? I don't remember. I think so too. For, and they talked about all of these loves and the next love that I'm going to tell you about. Isn't it amazing how they tie your heart to your finances, right? The love Paul is talking about is none of these. He's talking about agape love. Agape means totally unconditional, coming as a free gift, not because the beloved deserves it, but because the lover chooses it. Let me read that one more time. It means totally unconditional, coming as a free gift, not because the beloved deserves it, but because the lover chooses it. Can you take a minute and pray with me? Dear God, these words that you have given us today, may they help us, may we hear them, and may the meditation of our hearts and the words from my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Amen. I felt I needed to pray that because this has been, I've been working on this sermon for quite some time. 
I knew before I did the December one that I was going to be speaking today. And um, I thought about a lot of different things. And love is near and dear to my heart. My family taught me how to love. Now I'm learning to love as a Christian and learning agape love. And I think that wherever you are in your journey, you will find agape love in different realms. In chapter 12, Paul had been talking about spiritual gifts. The people in Corinth were so focused on these spiritual gifts and thinking that some gifts were more important than others. And Paul knew that they needed to be reminded that all spiritual gifts in their uniqueness were important and to be used together to complete the body of the church. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing." If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. You see, without love, none of these spiritual gifts means anything. Love is more important than all the spiritual gifts exercised in the church body. Great faith, acts of dedication or sacrifice, and miracle-working power have little effect without love. Knowledge, <clears throat> excuse me, as used here, has to do with the special God-given knowledge, spiritual understanding. That kind of knowledge is a great gift, but has a tendency to puff up the person who possesses it. And that has happened to these Corinthian Christians. While knowledge in the service of others can be good, People who use their knowledge to establish their superiority or dominance over other people are not in accord with God's will. They will only get an inflated opinion of themselves that will do nothing to help anyone. Have you ever encountered anyone who has an inflated opinion of themselves? Note that Paul uses the word all three times. All mysteries and all knowledge and all faith. He is talking about complete mastery of mysteries and knowledge and faith, like having a PhD degree in these subjects. No matter how complete the mastery, these virtues, in the absence of love, conveys no value to the one who has mastered them. Love makes our action and gifts useful. Although people have different gifts, Love is available to everyone. Agape love, self-sacrificing love, is behind all actions that put others first. This is the love with which God loves us by sending his son Jesus to die in order to restore our relationship with God. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed great, his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This agape love is the same love that motivates people to give their lives up to save others. This love is the same love that motivates people to live their lives for others. 
It is not only present in the warm, fuzzy feeling experienced by a couple who are infatuated with each other. It is the love that allows the same two people to remain married for many years, long after the infatuation has worn off. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians three things about the love of God, which they are called to imitate. And if you're in my small group, you need to be taking some notes because we're going to talk about this on Thursday. Love is essential, effective, and eternal. That is the message for us from this scripture. Love is essential, effective, and eternal. First, love is essential. Verses 1 through 3 spell this out. Anything we do, no matter how heroic or fantastic, needs to be motivated by love. This means that we must be doing the actions for the benefit of others and not ourselves. Otherwise, Paul says it's nothing or useless. Speaking in tongues is as useless as a clanging cymbal if it's not used for the benefits of others and only for oneself. I've also been told in some classes that we take as um, lay people that speaking in tongues doesn't mean anything unless there's someone to interpret because God uses both sides of that. He doesn't use one gift over the other. We can practice this kind of love by periodically checking our own intentions. Everyone loves when it feels good, when there's a benefit for the self. But what about when loving doesn't feel good? What if God calls us to tell people something that they don't want to hear? What if God asks us to do something unpopular? Jesus did this all the time. We know agape love is essential for Christianity, so we need to maybe weekly think about and ask others if they see self-sacrificial love in our actions. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Paul tells us what love is as well as what it is not. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. The second mark of godly love, it is effective. And in order to know if the essential love of God is present in our lives, we need to know what to look for. Paul spends verses 4 through 7 describing what agape love or truly true godly love looks like in our lives. Paul gives this list to the Corinthians as an accusation. Paul is basically saying to the Corinthians, you are not patient. You are not kind, you are envious, boastful, arrogant, and rude. Paul is talking about how the Corinthians are using their so-called spiritual gifts to glorify themselves at the expense of other congregation members. All of the positive statements in this passage could be applied to God, and all the negative ones could be applied to us. God is patient, God is kind, God rejoices in the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things, and endures all things. But us, we're envious and boastful and arrogant and rude. We insist on our own way. We're irritable and resentful, and far too often we rejoice in wrongdoing. So we have a long way to go. For us, we can use this list of attributes of godly love as a sort of litmus test to determine if our actions were motivated and carried out with love. Sometimes it's hard to look at ourselves objectively, and that's where a trusted Christian friend is needed, not a yes man or a yes woman who will lie to you like honey to soothe your tension. You need someone to examine if your actions are patient and kind and not boastful. What are our motivations as we live out our lives in the body of Christ? Do we truly love others as God loves us? Are our hearts divided? Are we using our spiritual gifts with or without love? My prayer is that we become effective disciples and use our gifts as God intends them to be used. In verses 8 through 13, Paul says, Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Our third point, the love of God that we are called to imitate in our actions is eternal. Our spiritual gifts are given to us to help build up and strengthen other believers. Paul is asking his friends in Corinth, what's going to last? On that day when we see God face to face, what will really be important? Will it be our reputation for wisdom or knowledge or supernatural experiences? No. In fact, on that day, we will be brought face to face with the truth of how little we really knew. We might think we have a good understanding of God and the way God works in the world, but one day we'll look back and think, how could I have been so blind? All our inspired speech and glorious miracles and splendid liturgies and sophisticated programming, on the day we see God face to face, it'll all just be like child's play to us. Our lives on earth will come to an end. Our choices, specifically our choices motivated by love, they will follow us into eternity in heaven. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our motivation to love others like God loves us. 
It's not simply about salvation. It's about setting the foundation for the kingdom of God while we are still alive. Those who love bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. In other words, they don't give up on people. Their love for one another is stubborn. It's what the Old Testament calls in Hebrew, chezd, which is translated in our NRSV as steadfast love. Eugene Peterson's message translation of the Bible says, love puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. You see, Paul is not the only writer in the Bible to teach about agape love. In fact, it's mentioned 106 times in the New Testament. Anything talked about that many times must truly be important. We obviously need to take note and practice living in love. God's love for us is so amazing. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God sent his son to live in our world, become fully human, yet while fully divine. During Jesus' time on earth, Jesus lived out agape love. He served others, fought injustice, and loved those people found unlovable. He remained obedient to God through all things. He taught the disciples life lessons. John 15, 9-10 I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater life, love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We are called to love. Paul's words to the people of Corinth are applicable to all of us today. Sometimes we get caught up in doing church, that we eliminate being loving. We forget to use the agape love with our own brothers and sisters and our neighbors. We sometimes forget that the great love God has for us and how much we are blessed by God. We are called to love in the same manner that God loves us. 1 John 4, 7-8 through 8. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced the perfect love. We're always striving to perfection in our love and our relationship with God. 
We obey God because we love God and know that God loves us, not because we're afraid of punishment. Over the last few weeks, we have been learning about faith that works in the James teaching series. And this is not all of it, but we have learned that we need to find the joy in our troubles, recognize that we're the source of our own temptation. God supplies us with blessings in the midst of trouble, and faith and favoritism do not mix. We need to follow the love or royal law from James 2.8. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself is found eight times in the Bible. Not once, not twice, eight times. Loving your neighbor as yourself is so important to God that he not only repeats himself, he makes it a command, and not just one in a list of many commands. Jesus coupled the command to love your neighbor as yourself with loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. James calls it the royal law. It sounds beautiful, and it is when we obey it. Personally, I've struggled with the concept of loving my neighbor as myself. I've struggled with loving myself and understanding how to do that. I know it has nothing to do with loving my physical appearance or my smile or any of those things. My struggle has been with remembering that God loves me and that I need to accept that love and journey on with God in faith. Yes, there are many times that my faith falters and my journey becomes difficult. In those times, I question, how can I possibly love my neighbor when I can't love myself? I've talked to the ladies in my small group about this many times, and they're always so supportive and helpful in lifting me up. I continue to think that maybe I was overthinking the whole thing, yet it remained heavy on my mind and my heart. And I want to... This is where I'm going off script for a minute, Marie. Last night we were watching, I don't know if you've seen that, um, it's called Eat, Love, Pray movie. Julia Roberts is in it. And she goes through this whole thing and she ends up with a divorce and she's lost her love for life. So she goes to Italy and she eats everything. Then she goes to India and she learns to pray. And when she goes to Bali, she learns to love. But when she was in India, another man who always teased her and called her groceries because of how much she ate. He said he could hear her coming before he saw her because of her eating. He took her up on the rooftop and he told her, because she was going to return, they'd been to a wedding and she was really upset, and he told her to come upstairs with him. And they were on this rooftop and and he told his story about how he had been... um, He was alcoholic, he was drunk all the time, mean, and his child was sitting in the driveway waiting for him to come home, and he was driving, and he didn't see his child. He does not hit his child. The child moved. And and he said the child had learned to move out of his way all the time. But that next morning, he woke up and found his wife and his child gone because she had witnessed what she saw out the window of him almost killing their son. And he came to tears, and he called her by her name, not groceries anymore. And he told her to stay there until she learned to forgive herself for all that she had. 
And you know, lots of times it's really easy to forgive. We can say we can forgive others, but forgiving ourselves is really hard because that tape plays over and over in your head about something that you may have done or that you could have done something differently. And so spending time in prayer and telling God your deepest secrets, which he already knows, but releasing them from your own self is so important. And you know, this wasn't even part of my message today. Watching that movie last night helped me to realize that I hadn't been overthinking it, that I just hadn't been going to God with what I needed to tell him and to ask for that, to ask to learn how to forgive myself for a myriad of things. So, going back, I contacted Pastor Rod because he's known me for a long time. Not that I, but Pastor Tim just doesn't know me, but Rod, I was in his first church. I stayed in their house when I was in Mount Pleasant because I had roommates that were druggies and they were um, doing all kinds of things. And Pastor Rod and his wife Jan opened their home to me for the last part of the semester so I could finish and take my exams at the end of the year. So I have a special bond with Pastor Rod. And he sent me this article, What Does It Mean to Love Your Neighbor as Yourself? And it's written by Danielle Burnick. And I just want to share some of the points from the article with you. Loving your neighbor yourself isn't always easy. That's why God made it a command. He knew we'd struggle. Making it a command is actually to our benefit. How is that? Because we have to do it on purpose. Be intentional about it sometimes even out of our need. So first, loving your neighbor means receiving God's love. To begin to love your neighbor as yourself, you need to know two things. You need to know what love is and that you are loved. The Bible tells us this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. You are the object of this love. God loves you. Knowing this is imperative, and not just loved in a general kind of way, but deeply loved and unconditionally loved. We tap into this when we understand that God loved us first. He's the source of our love. God loved us even before Jesus gave himself for us. God the Father is the source of all love. And before we can give this love, we need to receive it for ourselves You can't give what you don't have. Loving your neighbor means loving ourselves as well. To love your neighbor as yourself as commanded, you need to measure correctly. The measurement within this command is as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself, you need to love yourself. This is something that gets misunderstood in the body of Christ often. It gets mixed up with dying to self and denying self as if we need to destroy ourselves. This is not true. Jesus died for each and every one of us. If Jesus valued us enough to go through with what he went through, we owe it to him to value what he values. We need to love what he loves us. The Bible even tells us that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. And how dare we not love what the Father loves? Learning to love ourselves prepares and helps us to love our neighbor. Loving your neighbor means showing grace. Knowing God is love and that this love is for you and is not enough. It needs to be developed. 
Imagine if you had a field of good soil and a bag of top-notch seeds. Would they produce a crop all by themselves? No, the seeds must be planted and cared for. And grace takes the seed of his love in the soil of our heart and creates fruit for the kingdom of God. The Bible said, It's God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Loving him and our neighbor pleases him. Grace helps us do this. Grace teaches us proper love and respect for ourselves and for our neighbor. Freely receiving his grace empowers us to freely give it. Loving your neighbor means acting with compassion. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? What's, do you know what story he responded with? Any ideas? The Good Samaritan. Even those who have no love for God see the value of the story. What is the bottom line of this story? Who did Jesus say was being the neighbor? The one who had compassion. Compassion is not simply a warm, fuzzy feeling in our hearts. Compassion does something. A heart that's moved by compassion cannot sit idly by while someone suffers a need. Loving your neighbor as yourself is being moved to help to the full extent of your ability. And whether you believe or not that there are people who are battered and looking for shelter, it is true, and it is from compassion that we give. We do not say, oh, they could change their lives, because it's really hard when you are somewhere that you don't want to be, but you don't know how to get out. This is why we support people who support others. And loving your neighbor means looking out for their well-being. The NIV translation of 1 Corinthians 13 says love protects. In Philippians 2.4 it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Loving your neighbor as yourself is to look out for other people's well-being. That's to pay attention. You notice if they need something and then you help. For example, if your friend's clothing tag is sticking out or they have food on their face, you let them know. Or something more serious like my neighbor's toddler, this is a story from Danielle, got out and crossed the street. Concerned for his safety, she headed over there and was almost there when the grandma came out to intercept him and thanked him. And loving your neighbor means serving them. Serving from the heart is kindness and action. Kindness is one of the attributes of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13. The funny thing about kindness, though, is you can do acts of kindness without kindness in your heart. If the kind thing is done out of duty, then it isn't love. Jesus said he came to serve. He came to serve God, who is love. came to serve, love serves, for you to love your neighbor as yourself, You'll have a heart to serve them. Let them know you're there for them. If they need a ride somewhere, or you can give them a ride. If their cat or dog needs to be checked on on their vacation, I had lots of neighbors when I had cats. You do that for them. You get the mail for them. You give them a meal if they're not well. Or you could be at the store, and you have a cart full, and somebody has one thing behind you, and you let them go first. You're serving. And loving your neighbor means speaking kindly. This childhood rhyme about sticks and stones versus words is not true. Words build up or tear down. God created the world using words. So we need to build each other up. 
And loving your neighbor means making allowances for other people's humanity. We live in a day and age when offense is as common as breathing. Criticism is running rampant. Love is not easily offered, not easily offended or critical. Everyone does dumb things. No one is always right or knows everything. We're all a work in progress. She talks about sitting at a green light, and she wasn't trying to inconvenience anyone. She got stuck in a grieving daze because a family member had died. And she remembers now that when she encounters people driving too slow, sitting at lights, or even cutting her off, that maybe they have a reason. Maybe they're just being human. We're imperfect beings and do dumb things often. Giving people the benefit of the doubt is loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor means sharing in their joys and sorrows. Celebrating can be difficult for us at times, especially if our neighbor is getting something we've longed for. Uh, For example, a new job, a raise, or pregnancy. Celebrating with them in spite of our own pain is a strong show of love. Likewise, mourning with our neighbor can be hard if we don't know what to say or have recently lost something or someone ourselves. Loving your neighbor as yourself is showing up and being there with your heart open, allowing them to be what they are and support them. And the last point is loving your neighbor means forgiving. Forgiveness is a big deal to God. The Bible says he planned it for us from the foundation of the world. Jesus frequently spoke our forgiveness over others that resulted in the healing of their bodies. Forgiveness is freely given to us, and to love your neighbor as yourself, you'll pass the forgiveness on. Jesus highlighted this in his story in Matthew 18, when Peter asked how many times he is to forgive. He tells the story of a king who forgave an enormous debt of one of his servants. The servant failed to pass the forgiveness on. He demanded payment of a small debt from his neighbor. And when the king heard of it, he had his servant remanded for his debt revoking the debt cancellation. Jesus' story tells us that love always forgives. We all need forgiveness. So loving your neighbor is to forgive them as you have been forgiven. Remember this. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, that unending, self-sacrificing love. May we experience it, may we take hold of it, and may we love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen.